Grace and peace to you all. So let's uh, let's talk about the world for a minute. The uh, world that we live in seems to be somewhat divided these days, split into two very distinct groups. Now, what those two groups are kind of depends on who you are. Like, if you're politically minded right now, there are people who absolutely love and trust our uh, our country's president, and there are people who absolutely wish that they had moved to Bermuda. We live in a very us and them world. We also it's like we always have to find an, a them so that we can be us. Conservatives versus liberals or Democrats versus Republicans, capitalists versus socialists, black versus white, Americans versus the world, Greeks versus barbarians. You know, the Greeks did this too. They said, if you are civilized, you are Greek. And if you are not Greek, you are a barbarian. As we read the Bible, we read a lot about Jews versus Gentiles. We'll talk about that in a minute. But essentially, everything breaks down, most importantly, to two groups. There's the family of God and there's the family of the world. Or at least there was. That's what it used to be. Now it's not quite the same. Now it, it, we, it's like we're fighting to be that, but the reality is the resurrection of Jesus changed things. We need to kind of let go of these distinctions that make an us and them or us versus them attitude because through the resurrection of Jesus, those, those distinctions don't really exist anymore except that we keep trying to bring them back. Let me... Uh, Explain what I mean. Again, if you have a Bible to follow along, you probably want to. I'm going to hop you around a little bit, but I'll put the verses on the screen, but you're trusting that I'm putting the right stuff up here. I, I've got news for you. I could type whatever I wanted up here. I really could. Psalm 32, verse 6 says, Roger makes things up. Find that, yeah. Check me. So let's go back to the beginning of time. The first 11 verses of Genesis are prehistory. This is all stuff that happened before history started. You can decide for yourself whether uh, this is absolute word-for-word word God's truth or if this is absolute word-for-word word God's metaphors and you're supposed to just learn from the examples. But in Genesis chapter 4, we see the world split. Genesis 4, starting at verse 8, it says, Cain said to his brother Abel, Hey, let's go out in the field. And when they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel, and he killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Prior to this, we had one family. As soon as Cain killed Abel, and God said... Where's your brother? He said, I don't know. I don't take care of him. He's just abdicated his responsibility to the family. He has separated himself from his family. He has created a second family in the world. So now we have two family lines, the family of God and the family of the world. And if you are reading through the book of Genesis, or if you've been part of our coffee and conversation time after the, uh, after the service every week, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis, and we saw there's a whole chapter 
that covers the family line of Cain, and then there's a whole chapter that covers the family line of Adam, Seth, Abel. And one is the family of the world, and one is the family of God. And the reason that most people don't realize that is because you get to chapter 4 of Genesis, and you get to this so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so, and your brain turns off, because it's really boring. you got to learn how to read the boring parts, or skip over them, and follow through um, to the next chapter after that. Now here's the trick with these two family lines as they're listed in there. Neither of them is pure. People from one line or one family choose to go join the other family. And people from the other family choose to go be part of this family. So even though there's two separate groups, there's still the family of God and the family of the world. And you pick, or you did, you picked which one you, you served, which one you were part of. And by Genesis chapter 6, we hear that the sons of God's family have started marrying the daughter of the world's family. And then there's a big flood, and it resets everything down to one family. Because God says, I'm tired of you guys squabbling all the time. I'm tired of how much evil there is in the world. Look, there's only one man left in my entire family. It's Noah. And then there's all the rest of you, thousands and thousands of you who are in this other family. We're going to just, we're going to take it all the way down and just Noah and his family will start over. But by Genesis chapter 10, we have two separate family lines again. I catch up to myself. Oh, I didn't put it in. In uh, Genesis chapter 10, we have uh, Noah's children get into a little spat. Noah himself becomes the first guy who learns how to make wine. And uh, he, he has a little too much to drink. And he does something shameful and embarrassing. I have no idea what it is, by the way, because we're not told. But whatever it is, one of his sons sees his father doing this horrible thing and he thinks it's hysterical and he points it out to everyone to bring more shame on his father, separating himself from the family, kind of like Cain did. And the other two sons said, no, that's not right. We need to take care of each other when we're a family. And so they took care of their father and when their father sobered up, he cursed the one son and his family line, and he blessed the other sons and their family line. And so once again, we were back to two families. All of God's work to fix everything lasted all of about a year, <laughs> maybe three. We're really good at messing things up. Then we get to Genesis chapter 12. I'm not going to read the whole Bible, by the way, just so you know. I'm just trying to get out of the prehistory. So that was all prehistory. Now we're into history. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. God comes to a guy named Abraham. And he says, Abram, I'm going to make you a promise. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. So this is his promise. I'm going to make you a great nation. Literally, the, the Hebrew here is, I will make you Goy Gadal, which sounds like a reporter's name, but it's really, it's really, uh, it means, uh, nation that is great. Um, more specifically, uh, it means a, uh, one family. Going it all means one family. I will make you one family. So through Abram's descendants, God says, I'm going to just make one great family through your family line. That's goy. It means nation or family. In Latin, the word goy got translated to the word Gentile, which is a Latin word. 
And so we hear about Gentiles and Jews, and that's because we stick to the Latin word, because goy became uh, uh, a derogatory term. The fact that I have now said it three times is I'm probably going to get email from someone listening to the podcast saying, why are you swearing from the pulpit? But God's promise is that through a descendant in Abram's family, the whole world is going to be restored to one family. So it's not going to be two families anymore, but through your family, we're going to get back to one. But how does that work? How do we get people from one family into the other family? Well, for centuries, there was an easy way into the family of God. Are you ready for this? If you were part of the family of the world and you saw the family of God over there and you wanted to be part of them, you know what you needed to do? You had to go be part of them. That's it. One step. <laughs> Simple enough. Um, now, when we got to Abraham, God had actually set up a sign of the covenant. So people who were joining Abraham's household, who were moving from the family of the world to the family of God, they actually had, they had two steps. At least if they were men, they had two steps. Um, there was one more thing that men needed, or maybe I should say one less thing that men needed, uh, because they had to be circumcised when they moved in to the family of God. There was a symbol that demonstrated your conviction and how much conviction you must have as an adult to do that. I don't know, thank goodness. Um, so for 500 years, this was the way that you got into the family of God. You You went from the family of the world to the family of God, and if you were a man, you took the next step and you showed that you were part of the family. 500 years later, the people left Egypt. Am I going too quick? Am I going too slow? I feel like I'm going too slow. I need to speed up through history. So 500 years later, people leave Egypt. The Exodus happens. And in the Exodus, one of the things that happens is God parts the waters of the Red Sea and all the people walk through the water together. And what we always think about is, oh, it's just Abraham's family going out through the water. But the reality, if you read all of the the small print in the Bible in Exodus, you'll find that about half of the people who went with them were Egyptians. They joined the Israelite family to go with them, and they went through the Red Sea with them, and they got to the other side with them. And on the other side, what God said is, you are now all part of the family of Israel. You are all one tribe. He makes all these people who were two separate families into one family because they passed through the water. And so now suddenly there were three steps to be part of the family of God. So when someone from the family of the world said, I want to join the family of the God, the first thing they needed to do was come and be part of the family of God. The second thing they needed to do, if they were a man, was, yeah, get snipped. The next thing they needed to do was be baptized. Because the symbolism of being dunked in the water was the symbolism of passing through the Red Sea together. So it was like saying, I am going through the water as part of God's family. Y'all still with me? You all know know how to become part of the family of God 4,500 years ago. Excellent. Then I'm going to skip that part. I'm going to skip that part. I'm going to talk about getting married. You know, the easiest way to get into the family of God was considered to be marriage. Because if you married... As an Israelite man, a man from the family of God, you married a woman from one of the surrounding tribes. First, you brought fresh blood into your tribe, which is good. And second, you, as the uh, the Israelite man, would lead your wife to worship of God. Sounds good, right? 
And uh, it worked that way for quite a while. It was a popular way to, to bring people into the family. Um, but it didn't always work. Particularly starting around the time of King Solomon, we hear about he's trying to appease his 700 wives and 300 concubines. And the way that he would make peace between all of these different wives is he went ahead and set up their forms of worship from wherever they came. So he, his first wife was a princess from Egypt. And so he set up a temple to worship Egyptian gods. And then he had another wife who was from Babylon. So he set up a temple to worship Babylonian gods. And then over and over and over through all 1,000 wives, he set each of them up their own house of worship. Rather than bringing them into worship of God, he went to worship the way they did. And as the king goes, so does most of the country. So we started having other men who they would marry outside their tribe and then they would start worshiping the idols, the false gods, and the things outside the tribe. And pretty soon we had a mixed up family. The people who said they were part of the family of God were acting as if they were part of the family of the world. And so what was really happening was people were shifting back the other way. Even though they did the things to be part of the family of God, they were living as if they were part of the family of the world. And God said, you're no longer in my family if you're not living like a member of my family. And so the traditions rose among the sages about how to be part of God's family. And they started arguing about what did it really take? How much passion or conviction or zeal did it actually take to live in the family of God? And so there were two main schools of thought here. There was one uh, ancient rabbi, his name was Shammai. And Shammai was like the hardline guy. He didn't like anyone or anything, pretty much. In fact, in all of Shammai's teachings, I have really only ever found one thing that I wholeheartedly agreed with. Um, but he said, no one can convert. He said, if God wants you to be in the family of God, you'd be born in the family of God. And if you were not born in the family of God, obviously God realizes you are never going to be part of his family and you're destined to be burned in the garbage pit. Well, Shammai's view was very popular among about 40% of the people. And then along came another rabbi, a guy named Hillel. I like Hillel about 90% of the time, personally. Not that that makes any difference to the story. Hillel said, if you want to be part of the family of God, you should come and ask to be part of the family of God. And any convert who came to Hillel, Hillel would say, go and learn what it means to be part of the family of God. Go learn the Torah. Go learn the instructions that God left his people. He just said learn. He didn't even say you had to do it. He just said learn it. And he just accepted anyone as a convert. So there were two schools, and about 40% of the people agreed with him. And then there was 40% who said Hillel are right, and 40% who said Shemaiah are right, and then there are the 20% who were like, I don't know who's right, and I don't care. I'm just going to live my life. And along came a group called the Pharisees. 5,000 years of history in 8 minutes. Along came a group called the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees generally followed Hillel's thinking. They believed anyone who wanted could be a convert. But they went back to those three first steps. Okay, you want to be part of the family of God? Come to be part of the family of God. But I want to see that you want to be part of the family of God. I need you to come to services so many times. And I need you to do so many sacrifices. And I need you to follow so many steps so that we know you are 
part of the family of God. And then, if you're a man, I need you to be circumcised. And then, male or female, you need to be baptized. And that's your final step into becoming truly Jewish. That was the Pharisee view. All of which led up to the death and resurrection of Jesus. So you had two choices. Outsiders couldn't be part of the family of God, or outsiders could, but only with great effort. Only by following a large series of steps. But this Jesus guy was odd. He did a lot of strange things. According to the standards and traditions of his culture, Jesus behaved very oddly. In fact, well, that's just me being polite. Um, People mostly just thought Jesus was wrong. He did all kinds of things that were just wrong according to their standards. He touched the untouchable. He spent time with sinners. He intentionally walked through pagan lands and talked to people who he wasn't supposed to talk to. He even cast demons out of a Gentile pig farmer, and everyone knows you shouldn't be with 100 miles of one of those guys. He even healed the slave of a centurion. Centurion, a Roman soldier, one of the oppressors who held Israel under their thumb. Jesus' disciples, they didn't get it. They did not get it at all when Jesus was first teaching. In fact, they didn't even really get it towards the end of his teaching. Uh, As he headed for Jerusalem that last time, he brought his followers through the lands of the Samaritans. Now, he'd been here before. Israel was kind of split into three parts. There was Judah down in the bottom. There was Galilee up in the top. And right in the middle, there was this area that was Samaria. But we didn't like the Samaritans. The Samaritans were were horrible, horrible people, according to the Jews. See, back uh, in the day, Babylon came in and took most of Israel captive and scattered them all around the world. And when they did that, they left a few people there behind, and they brought people from around the world to go and intermarry with those people. So anyone who stayed behind was no longer pure, pure in their blood. And as a result... When the people came back to Israel after the exile, they said, you guys in Samaria are no longer true members of the family of God, and we want nothing to do with you. So the Samarians built their own temple, and they worshipped their own ways, and they started adapting some of the pagan practices from around them, and they had their own thing going. And even uh, later on, when their temple was destroyed, they kept worshipping there on Mount Gerizim instead of going to the mount, the temple mount where... The temple was in Jerusalem. There's not a test on this, by the way. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other with a passion that was indescribable. If you were going to Jerusalem, as most Jewish people did, two or three times a year for certain pilgrimage um, uh, rituals that they needed to complete. When they came to the border of Samaria, they would actually go out of their way, walk hours or even days out of their way so that they didn't cross through Samaritan lands. Because if they crossed through Samaritan lands, they might have to talk to a Samaritan. You don't want that. But Jesus had this odd habit that anytime he needed to get across Samaritan lands, he just walked through. And he would stop at the towns and he would talk to people. And he would ask for hospitality. 
Because that was something in the ancient Near East that you had to give. If someone asked you for hospitality, you had to open your house and let them stay there. So Jesus not only talked to people he wasn't supposed to talk to, he ate with them and he stayed in their house. You don't look shocked. This is shocking. You can't believe he would do that. Well, the people in his time couldn't believe it. Let's see if we can modernize it. Uh, so you uh, happen to be in a coffee shop hanging out and the people at the next table, there's four or five of them, and uh, you overhear them discussing how they're going to uh, bomb an airplane. And you say, hey, why don't you come over to my house and you can spend the night. I'll give you some dinner. Does that sound logical? Even that is not as shocking as Jesus staying with a Samaritan. But he did it several times. Jesus would do this on purpose and stop to talk and, and he spent the night and sometimes he spent more than one night and it was almost as if Samaritans were worth his time. It's almost as if he thought of them as people and not just the dregs of outcast society. Then, on his last visit, guess who rejected him? A town full of Samaritans. He stopped at a town as if they were worth his time. And they said, we don't want you here. We recognize you're a Jewish man on your way to a Jewish festival and we don't deal with your kind. No hospitality for you. And this upset his disciples no end. He had two in particular, two brothers, James and John Zebedee. And these two guys were pissed. And they said, Jesus let us call down fire and destroy all of this village. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Sounds so polite that way, doesn't it? They could be barbecued. Yeah. But you know what? Jesus just took the refusal in stride. And you know who he got angry with instead? The Zebedees. He rebuked them. He said, no, what are you talking about? Have you not been listening to anything I've taught you in the last three years? And then just a few days later, Jesus was dead. And then a few days after that, he was resurrected. As we've seen over the last few weeks, the resurrection changed everything. It was as if his followers' understanding of what was important in life shifted after the resurrection. They didn't think the Samaritans were important before the resurrection. Even just a few days before, they didn't think they were important. In fact, just before... Jesus, I'm sorry, just after Jesus was resurrected, just before Jesus uh, uh, left, ascended, the people gathered around him and they asked him this question. He said, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Because even after the resurrection, just in those days after, his disciples were still focused on the idea of making Israel great again. One nation under God, right? And we're going to have this one nation, and it's going to rule over all the others with an iron fist. That was their expectation for the Messiah. He was going to come and make this one nation so great it would crush all the others, and then everyone would do what they said. What a great idea. 
us over them. But Jesus said, It's not for you to know the times or periods the Father has set by His own authority. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You're going to be my my disciples, my teachers, the people who bring my voice and my message out to the world. You're going to start in town. Then you're going to go out to the region. Then you're going to go to that region of people that you have shunned. And then you're going to go to the rest of the world that you don't think is important. Because they matter to me. Jesus just gave them a map with no borders on it. This is my world. Still, though maybe, maybe, he just meant they should gather up the Jewish faithful from all the places they'd been scattered around the world, right? Maybe it was just just that small, elect group of people. Even the Samaritans, for all their unclean practices, they started with Hebrew blood. Maybe they could be restored to purity through uh, some, some redirection, a little retraining, a little restoration. So early on, one of the disciples, a guy named Philip, went down to a city in Samaria and he proclaimed the Messiah to them. Jesus was the Messiah. And I am here to tell you about him. Get down to verse 12. It says, When they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God and about the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. They are lining up to do what they think they need to do to be in the family of God. And then verse 14 says, When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Why did they send Peter and John to them? Was it because they thought Philip needed help? No, it was because they thought Philip needed someone to check him. He's talking to Samaritans. Can you believe it? You guys got to go check this out. And just make sure Philip hasn't gone off his rails. Because we think he's nuts. Can it possibly be true that Samaritans received the gospel? And it turned out they had. They had. And once Peter and John had prayed and laid hands on them, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter and John got to see this. The, the, the checkup guys got to see the reality. So they weren't bringing back stories, oh, Philip said this happened. They were coming back and saying, you won't believe this. I laid hands on a Samaritan in the name of Jesus. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. All the same miracles that we're doing in the early church, they're doing in their church there. We are all part of one family. It was almost as if someone was waiting for these leaders to really understand that Jesus doesn't break things down into us versus them. And once they got that, they allowed this other group to be part of their family, God's family. The church's unwillingness to accept these brothers and sisters into the body had somehow frozen it in place until the leaders could be there and see for themselves that the Holy Spirit was part of that body. Does that make sense? I lost anyone yet? The church was frozen and could not spread the good news But as soon as it accepted that outcast group into God's family, the Holy Spirit became part of each and every one of them. 
And the word of God began to spread out again. So like Jesus said, start in town, go to your region, go to that region, and then go to the world. But that was just people who shared Jewish beliefs and practices. Surely Jesus didn't really mean for them to reunify the nation of Israel under his banner and allow other people in, did he? (laughs) Got one more guy to talk about. His name is Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman soldier of some rank. He was a centurion. means he was in charge of a large group. He was a a Roman soldier from an Italian regiment. He lived in a Roman city inside of Israel, a place called Caesarea. He was a Gentile, and he was part of the occupying force that kept all the Palestinian region in that area under Rome's thumb. Even being spoken to by a man like Cornelius would lead many Jews to believe that they were unclean and that they would need to go and perform all kinds of rituals to purify themselves to get right with God again. And according to their traditional teachings, they were completely right. You can't talk to these guys. But God sent an angel to Cornelius. And the angel said, have Peter come and preach to you. And so Cornelius did. And surprisingly, Peter came when he was called. And he preached. But there are reasons for that. But we'll get to that in just a second. Let me tell you what happened when he preached. When he preached, according to Acts 10, verse 34 and 35, Peter began to speak. He said, Now I truly understand God doesn't show favoritism. This is the beginning of his sermon. He said, But in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In every nation. doesn't matter where you are. Oh my goodness, you're a Roman soldier. And yet, nonetheless... I recognize that you love God and God loves you. How big of a change is that for Peter? I'll tell you the story I was trying to actually get to this morning. Acts verse uh, chapter 11. We're going to do 18 verses out of here. I'm going to just fly through them if that's okay. The apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And they were ticked. Okay, I added that part. I didn't really, you just have to read it between the lines, though. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Remember, you weren't supposed to even talk to these guys or listen to them or be near them, and yet Peter went and stayed with them. He's doing the same kind of crazy things Jesus did. So Peter began to explain to them step by step. All right, I was in the town of Joppa, I was praying, and I saw in a trance an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners from heaven, and it came to me. And when I looked closely and I considered it, I saw all the four-footed animals of the earth, the wild beasts, the reptiles, and the birds of the sky, and I also heard this voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Oh, no, Lord, I said, nothing impure or ritually unclean has ever entered my mouth. And a voice answered from heaven a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call impure. 
There were all these laws set up around what you could and couldn't eat because if you ate the wrong thing, you became ritually impure and it was said your soul died a little bit and you needed to go all through different rituals to regain your purity. And what Peter's saying is he's getting this message that he can have bacon. Chuck Swindoll, who's a big name preacher for about 30 years, he, uh, he said... What people were upset about when Peter got back was probably that he still had that first ham sandwich he'd ever eaten on his breath. Because he's hanging out with Romans, eating Roman food, speaking to people he's not supposed to talk to, touching the untouchable. Now if this had only been one vision, maybe Peter would have woke up and thought, well, what a weird dream. But as he goes on to explain, he says, Now this happened three times, and everything was drawn up again into heaven. And at that very moment, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. So he had the vision three times, and then three guys who he wasn't supposed to talk to showed up. A vision three times telling him, What I say is pure, you don't get to call impure. Three guys who Jesus, Jesus, who Peter would have called impure who he would have said weren't worthy of his time. That very moment, three men who'd been sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were, and the Spirit told me to accompany them with no doubts at all. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we went into the man's house. So Peter didn't even go alone. He grabbed six of his friends. He wanted a perfect group to go and meet with these guys and see what happens. This is still Peter talking. He's talking about Cornelius. He says, He reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house saying, Send to Joppa, call for Simon, who is also named Peter. And he'll speak a message to you by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them just as it did on us in the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord and how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he summed up by saying, if then God gave them the same gift he also gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? I know you guys want me to say that these people are unclean and we should have nothing to do with them, ever. But God is telling me they're part of his family. Who am I to stand in God's way? I love this. When they heard this, they became silent. That Jewish idiom from the first century, it means there were no more arguments. When they heard this, they became silent. And then they glorified God, saying, So then God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. He's even letting outsiders come to be part of the family of God. And so the whole world was given the right to become part of the family of God, just like God promised Abraham. And we get to uh, the Apostle Paul writing letters to uh, the churches, trying to explain to them how all this works. And in Galatians 3, verses 27 through 29, he says, Okay, for those of you who are baptized into Christ, you have been clothed with Christ. There's no Jew or Greek or slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You are heirs according to the promise. You're all one. In Christ, you're all one. Jesus touching the untouchables was startling and unbelievable, but his apostles accepting as brothers and sisters people who were living in lifestyles which were alien and offensive to them because of their Jewish moral sensibilities, it's breathtakingly impossible for that to have happened. But it's logically sound if Jesus' teaching that they're supposed to love is taken literally. The resurrection of Jesus demonstrated the truth of his teaching that each and every person should be valued and cared about. Each and every person should be treated as if they are worthy of the respect that you would pay to God himself. Which in turn restores everyone to a place in the family of God if they choose to accept it. So we don't have two families anymore. We have the family of God and we have people who have chosen not to act like they live in the family of God. (laughs) Sorry. Everyone is now part of the family of God. You now all have to treat everyone like they're part of your family. Darn it. Even that guy you really don't want to. What's that? If you cuss at your family? What do you do if you cuss at your family? Later on you're probably, oh, I'm sorry. I would, I would recommend that. It's easy to make amends sometimes. Sometimes it's harder. We take ourselves to dark places, but um, if everyone is part of the family of God, then there is no ethnic superiority. There's no Jew. There's no Gentile. There's no difference in value as a person. There's no distinction or exclusion to be drawn because of gender or race or height or weight, language, hair color, eye color. We need to live in equality without borders because Jesus treats us as if we live in equality without borders. All are one in Christ Jesus. There is no us. There is no them. There's only Christ who is crucified for all, offering forgiveness to all, offering to us all a place by his side. Do you hear many times I get the word all in there? All we need to do is accept it. Will you accept it? I, I think I didn't hear enough of that to answer. But that's okay. Well, let me wrap it up because I see by the clock I have preached much longer than I should have. I also see by the, uh, the people around me that I have preached much longer than I should have. I have a very soothing voice. (sighs) If you took all the people who slept in church and you laid them end to end, they would be a lot more comfortable. This is our job that Jesus gave us, this picture right here. We're supposed to put the whole world back together into his family. Not two halves, not two parts, not us and them, but one unit. You have to decide, are you going to be part of that or are you going to ignore it? In fact, that's my, my whole altar call to you today. You get to make a decision. Am I going to live in an us and them world? Or am I going to live in Christ's world? Personally, I like Christ's world. 
I'll let you make your own call. I'm going to close this in prayer. Father, I ask that uh, you would help each and every one of us recognize the places where we consider ourselves superior to others. Help us find anywhere that we believe that there is an us that somehow outranks the them, and that there is an us that should take precedence over the them, and help us find those spots and give them over to you. Help us to recognize, like Peter did, that Jesus really meant love everyone equally. Help us to recognize, like those early believers did, that it's okay to accept those people into our family, because it is your family, God. Help us to find ways to get along with one another. Help us rub our corners off so that we're not poking each other in the ribs. Help us find ways to to get along, to be unified in your name. In fact, we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.